Empire. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today it's a joy to have with us a uh, real-life James Bond. <laughs> Naveed Jamali, he uh, accepted a commission in the U.S. Navy as a reserve intelligence officer. He served with the Office of Naval Intelligence and the Defense Innovation Unit. He's gone on to become an MSNBC intelligence analyst, a senior fellow in the program on national security at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a special contributor for the Military Times, and a recurring guest on Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. He's briefed the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence on Russian Intelligence Collection Tactics and is currently an editor-at-large for Newsweek. And he tells me he has no intention of traveling to Russia anytime soon. It's a pleasure to bring you to the show, Navi. Thanks for being here. Uh, we won't go to Russia anytime soon. <laughs> so, we won't be traveling anywhere anytime soon. No, no. Well, so, uh, <laughs> Hank Morrell, we'll, we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have Just Ask the Question. If you're bored in the house, bored in the house, bored, why not play with your balls? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure your balls are smooth while you or your partner are playing with them. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving your balls thanks to their Lawnmower 3.0. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. While you are probably looking for new things to do at home, why not make manscaping a part of your routine? That's what we're doing here at JATQ. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0. It's precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. You're probably sitting on the couch with a hand on your balls anyway. Might as well keep them smooth as eggs and smelling fresh. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code just ask at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use J U S T A S K. So we're back, and Navita, since the title of the show is Just Ask the Question, I'm going to just ask you the question. How weird is life these days for you? <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, Brian, it's like this thing where. In the last seven weeks, I haven't traveled more than a few miles from my house. And I think it's the same with a lot of Americans that we just, there's really, you know, there's just a really nowhere to go. And <laughs> it is this surreal, surreal feeling, right? Like, you know, here in Seattle and Washington state, this is the, this is the best time of the year uh, to be in the Pacific Northwest. And it's beautiful out, but you know, there's a global pandemic where, you know, seven, north of 70,000 of our fellow Americans are dead. And, you know, but on the other hand, it's this surreal moment where it's beautiful outside. The birds are singing, the, the flowers are blooming. Um, and it just feels, 
I know, not real. Yeah, I think we're all there. I, I don't think it's anything we've ever seen before. One of the things I wanted to uh, talk to you about is having read uh, one of your pieces in Newsweek, uh, a little bit about the idea that this <laughs> pandemic is A, a hoax, or B, the <laughs> concoction of a Chinese military um, uh, laboratory experiment gone awry. Um, so <laughs> your thoughts on that, if I may. Yeah, no, I think it's a very important thing. So we've been covering U.S. intelligence assessments. So this is, you know, um, what U.S. intelligence is saying, and, and as well as the scientific community. There is no evidence that this was a man-made um, pathogen. So, But just to make that completely clear, that there is no evidence <laughs> that human beings create this pathogen. Now, the question that remains in front of the scientific community and, and, and you know, U.S. intelligence, and, and look, it's taking the Trump administration out of this for, for a moment, is whether or not this was a pathogen that uh, escaped a lab in what the U.S. intelligence community calls a, a lab mishap. Now, there is no evidence that a lab mishap has occurred, but that is not to say that in Wuhan that, you know, Wuhan was legitimately studying coronaviruses because they have an interest in it and they it's very likely that they had the, the virus in a lab they were studying. And there's a question, a legitimate question, which hasn't been ruled out, which is, you know, did it um, get out of the lab and start an infection? Again, no evidence that there is, uh, but it is something the U.S. intelligence community is going, is looking into. That's very different from this idea that this was like a man-made bioweapon that was released on purpose into the general public. That, that's the, the U.S. intelligence has actually come out and said specifically that is not the case. Right. And it would be kind of silly, but that's that's another, you know, the conspiracy theorists are going to be silly anyway. What about the idea that it's a hoax? That, golly, we don't need, you know, we, we don't need to wear our masks. I mean, we look at the president of the United States. He tells us to socially distance. He doesn't. He doesn't wear a mask. So, ergo, he knows better it's a hoax. You know, this is something I'm sure you, you, you feel this, too, that... The, the frustration I have with this is that the insidiousness of this pathogen is that it leads people to, you know, die alone. And we're not seeing bodies in the street. So unfortunately, the deaths that occur with this are very private and very isolated. And I think that there's a disconnect that Americans don't realize that people really are dying from this. And, and you know, and I, by the way, I think that 70,000 number That's is probably low. low. It's 84,000 yeah. 84, today. It's 84. Well, okay, so yeah. even that, I'm sure there are deaths that as time progresses will be added to that just because they didn't know to look for this in, in, in the past. But nonetheless, it's not a hoax. Um, it, clearly, there's scientific evidence. Cle clearly, this is not the flu. Clearly, one, you know, one of the most dangerous things about this is that you can be contagious and have absolutely no symptoms, be completely asymptomatic, so have no fever. So you could feel fine and just be going out and infecting people. And in fact, that's, you know, that's why it spreads so quickly. What do you say to people like that? But I think it's, Brian, it, it touches on a larger issue of the uh, United States of, you know, science deniers and, and oh. you know, I sort of feel like we're seeing this birtherism, uh, uh, anti-global warming, and now anti-COVID hoaxers who are kind of, it's all based on the same mental illness they have. I don't know exactly what how to characterize, but it's not logic, right? You can't well, argue denying, with someone who it's, doesn't. Yeah, it's denying science for a feeling in your gut. You stay in your own um, emotional and philosophical cul-de-sac 
and anything that's outside of it you can dismiss because it uh, it doesn't fit into your preconceived notions. That's that's right. And that, that's well, the frightening part about that is that is that you, you risk your own life in doing it. But the the politicization in the end of science, making science fodder for politics, is you know kind of what they did in the Middle Ages. You, you know you can't say the 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 earth revolves around the sun because our politics and our and, and more importantly our religion say you can't and there's a touch of that in this I believe as well you know and it it it's frightening to me that people will in this day and age I mean but what do you expect there are still people that belong to the flat earth society and believe well, that right. exists I mean, I don't I mean know the that, whole idea with, with uh you know with uh public education about teaching uh, Big Bang Theory with, you know, creationism that there's, we should be teaching both equally. It, this is what it stems from, this idea, this anti-science um, rhetoric that has existed long before COVID. You know, you can sort of see that that's what this produced. I mean, that's when you when you indoctrinate uh, a genera generations of people to believe that science is an opinion <laughs> right? and that it should be given equal time in the same way that one would be debating, you know, adding a stop sign at an intersection <laughs> uh, that all, you know, that all opinions matter. It, it, they don't, you know, I mean, look, we're in media. Um, there's a difference between asking a heart surgeon and a man on the street about cardiovascular surgery, right? Like right. one, one person's opinion just factually matters more in that regard. doesn't mean that they're, that the, the other's, worth as a human being is somewhat less but we've created this thing where every opinion matters and you know it just unfortunately doesn't work for science it's just not the way that you're going to wish this away or believe it away i mean it's just well that's it's here that's the old saying isaac asimov said the strain of intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge and yeah, that, that, that sums it up. I mean, yeah. it, and it's, it is, you know, these people genuinely, uh, I'm sure you've run into them, genuinely the believe time. this. I mean, they just really refuse to acknowledge. And so you can't use logic with them. You, you no. know, you can't. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, others shouldn't be informed. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing. But I'm sorry, like those viewpoints don't, it, this is not a time for all opinions matter. It's just right. not, this is not the time for it. Now, you got your first classified leak document on COVID on February 27th. Tell me what yes. Tell me what you learned in that. Well, I, let me just tell you the story about this because it was okay. the whole process was surreal. So, you know, if you imagine where we are today versus late February, it could, two different worlds, right? I mean, yes. none of this. I'll, had, I'll tell you my own we, story about that very day later, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so... I was actually, this was actually the last time that I, I ventured out um, into sort of away from home. I was actually chaperoning my 11-year-old son's trip in the woods for a school trip. So it was me and uh, other parents chaperoning a bunch, the entire uh, fifth fifth grade of his middle, of his school in this like uh, oh, sleepaway. Oh, fun times. <laughs> yes, fun times. And so on one level, I'm getting these documents and I only have cell service in a couple of spots I have to walk to. Uh, away from you know the cabins, and I'm arguing with the White House who doesn't want us and the Pentagon trying to confirm the story. So what we got was a document from um, the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, that, uh, and this was the first time since Ebola that the Joint Chiefs of Staff had been briefed on a pathogenic 
threat. So that tells you how serious they were taking it back in, in late February. And um, the Secretary of Defense, we, we, we believe, was briefed shortly thereafter. Um, but the, the assessment said that within 30 days, and again, this, nothing had happened beyond a global health emergency, that within 30 days, this was going to become a global pandemic. And within 90 days, it was going to have a severe strain on medical systems worldwide. And again, February, nothing, you know, most of America was running completely as normal. And so to try to get that story out and to try to wrap my head around that concept um, was, I, I'm going to use surreal a lot, but it was it was surreal. So we were trying to report that back and it, you know, we got it out. And I, again, I just think that most Americans, and it's not any fault of theirs, I just don't think that they understood, myself included, the severity of, of what was about to come. I first learned of, well, back in January, we knew of the coronavirus the, when the Chinese sure. came and visited us. But uh, right. the trade delegation visited us in mid-January. Uh, I remember I was talking to members of uh, the Wuhan province, some of the, uh, uh, some of the reporters, and uh, I, I remember then we had been talking of it, but it wasn't that dangerous or we weren't thinking of it that dangerously but on february 28th or that's a couple of weeks later i'm sorry in the beginning of february there was a meeting that they had in the eeob and uh alex azar had it there was about 50 reporters and i remember talking to uh steve holland from reuters when we left and i said what do you think steve because i was a little shook because i had asked about numbers that i had heard from the cdc and they were basically confirming that you know Millions of people could get infected and hundreds of thousands of people could die by this. And Holland said, that's the first time I've ever walked into a meeting and felt worse leaving it than when I walked into the briefing. <laughs> and so yeah. I mean, we, we kind of knew. And then on February 28th, I asked him because the CDC that day, the day after you got your um, leak, is the day Trump went to South Carolina for a rally and called it a hoax. And I had, right. That's right. And I had asked him... On the South Lawn that morning, the CDC had upped the, the ante and said this was dangerous, and he said that, you know, it, it, it was a hoax. You, know, you can sort of see, when we look at the documents, sort of retrospectively, you can sort of see uh, legitimately, Brian, like a, a, a sort of a change in the assessment the intelligence community had. I don't think the world, I think we have to take into account that the world didn't really accept that this was happening. It wasn't just the United States. So there was a slow sort of acceptance that this is going to be serious, and it's it, Seems the narrative, you know, at first was, hey, this is not going to leave China. Then it was, it's going to leave China, but we can contain it. To holy, you know, holy cow, we, we, uh, this is this is going to be very serious. And I just look at it, and it's just, it's very clear that the U.S. had a inkling, uh, and a legitimate inkling, this was going to be a big deal. Um, you know, as late as 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 late February and, and January, there were reports about this. But I don't think that they genuinely believed that it was going to what was happening in China was going to be uh, was going to happen here. And that's part of our sort of ethnocentrism, our sort of bias that, you know, we think of China as sort of this backwards country, which in a lot of ways, um, as authoritarian as China is, you know, they really kind of handled the social distancing and the isolation better than anyone has. I mean, they've been able to do that because they're an authoritarian country. But I think a lot of a lot of you know officials just didn't really think that it was going to hit as bad as it was here. Now that's January. By February, it's hard to argue. By the time it, things started happening in Italy, it's hard to argue that we shouldn't have known 
uh, better and started right. addressing this much more aggressively. From where I sat at the White House, it, it seemed to me that we knew. I, I don't have the access to the intelligence that you have. I can only tell you that we were speaking about it on a daily basis. We knew that it was a growing sure. concern. We were asking questions about it. And I, you know, as, as late as, as early March, um, Trump was saying stuff like, uh, hey, look, uh, A, that there's 15 cases and soon there will be none. I remember that one. And then he, he told us how anyone who wanted a test could get a test. And that's never been true at all. And it's still not true. It's still not true. Well, it is if you work in the White House. Everyone around him can get right. tested whenever they want and daily. And now, beginning yesterday, those who are in the press pool and are there on a daily basis will get tested. The general public, I know of many, many people who have had symptoms and have not been able to be tested. Yeah, it's and and that's the problem is that you talk about symptoms. You know, the when we look at the data from the from the individual states, who's getting tested is primarily people who show up in the ICU who are admitted to the ICU. Right. And you know, they're, they're symptomatic and they're they're quite ill. And what they're trying to do at that point is is do a rule out. But you know, the issue here, Brian, is is, is if you're a, if you're asymptomatic, you want to be able to be tested while you're asymptomatic because that's how you stop the spread and so if we're right. not doing large-scale <laughs> testing we're never gonna get ahead of this well he he says we've done more tests than anybody else and that, numerically he's correct but per capita he's not per capita right and uh so he wants to use new he wants to use the numerical superiority there but he doesn't want to recognize that if you're going to do that then talk about the numerical superiority of the number of deaths that we've had he wants to use right. the per capita cases there, and that's not – so you, you, he wants to have his cake and eat it too every time he talks. You know, this is the problem. It's like the numbers just don't mean anything. They've been spun in such a way that they they lose all sort of meaning. Um, the reality is we don't have a federal response to this. I mean we just don't. And the federal response should have been uh, – my wife is a scientist. She's a, she's a cancer researcher. Um, she's an essential employee, so she's still been working through all of this. And, you know, when you think about the test, it's not just the number of tests that we need. It's the infrastructure. It's the, you know, the drivers to go collect them from sites. It's the lab technician to process them, the labs to do the tests. And, like, this should all be federalized. We should all be, you know, if they want to open up the economy, uh, people actually, there's there's two choices. One, stay closed or, or open everything. And I say there's a third, which is this middle ground, which is if you're going to open things up, just like they're doing with the press pool, you should be testing people regularly. And that should be where the federal government should step in. And, and, and the fact that they, they just haven't is... Especially meat I don't packers. Know what That's what I, what I can't fathom is that he's ordering the meat industry open, and yet meat packers cannot get you know, tested uh, daily. That, that, that to me would be a, a frustrating and very potentially dangerous situation. Clearly. Um, let, let me talk a little bit to you about, uh, and I want to switch topics for a minute and talk a little bit about gathering information on Russia. Sure. There is no doubt, and now, uh, and Trump is today still going after the Mueller report and saying there was no, you know, there was no proven examples of collusion. Look, fact <laughs> is, Russia hacked our 2016 election. Fact shows that it was made to uh, benefit Donald Trump. So see, it doesn't really matter whether or not he was uh, colluding with them or not. He benefited from them. Is that correct to say? Yeah, absolutely. 
And so, I mean, it, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say that there's just to, you know, one of the th big things that I get sort of turned up about is uh, there's a difference between the criminal aspect of this um, and the counterintelligence. And, and I think that's an important counterintelligence is focused on protecting the national security. It's not not really interested in, in bringing charges or perp walks or anything like that. And I think that, you know, that is a very, very different part of this. And Eric Swalwell, who I'm a big fan of, you know, told me once, you know, look, the counter, the, the laws and the books are antiquated. No one envisioned a crime like this. So, you know, when you have Russians who were clearly, clearly in my mind, targeting American citizens, which, in of itself, you know, to be targeted for recruitment by Russian intelligence is not a crime. Like, right. that doesn't make you a bad person, doesn't make you guilty of anything. But they were being targeted. Clearly, clearly the Russians, whether it was the Trump meeting, whether it was numerous reach outs, they were testing the waters for recruitment. That's what I see that someone who, who worked in that space. And the issue that you want to generally have is when that happens is that you count on Americans to do the right thing and report it to the FBI. And not one of these people ever picked up the phone and called the FBI. No. So from didn't. a national security component, clearly this was an attempt to recruit. Now, I can say that, you know, the fact that Flynn was removed as national security advisor, was identified as a, as, as a you know, target for Russian recruitment, um, while that might not make him guilty of a crime, although he did plead guilty and admit Twice. to lying to the FBI. Yeah. Um, it clearly stopped the Russian attempt uh, ability to recruit him, you know, because he was what, you know, we've all heard he was burned. Compromise. He was essentially burned. But from a counterintelligence perspective, that was a success, even if the criminal proceedings are falling apart. Further, okay, so, in, and I've read the Mueller report many times, and it says that there were no, there, you know, collusion A isn't a crime. And right. of course, the, the Trump campaign did not try to, well, did not successfully collude with the Russians but did try, and they were yeah. so incapable of doing it, they reaped the rewards, although they were never able to connect up with anyone uh, to further their interests. They took advantage of what already occurred. That was in Part A of the Mueller report. Part B, though, outlines 10 to 11 different uh, examples of obstruction of justice, or what could be uh, prosecuted as obstruction of justice, and that the uh, Trump administration conveniently forgets about or glosses over. Uh, the other thing that uh, was always of interest to me is that while he has always said this was a Russian hoax, his administration sanctioned 23 of the Russians that were indicted in the from the Mueller report. So right. how, how can you say it's a hoax? <laughs> no, it's clearly. I mean, and again, I, I go back to this point where there's the, crim, you know, things that rise to the level of criminality um, but then there's the other part of this, which is clearly the Russians, and they should tell you something equally. The Russians saw an opportunity here and were aggressively trying to move in. They're trying to make contact with these people, and they're trying to make contact for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to see if they were willing to be recruited. I mean, that's that's how this stuff works, Brian. It's not it's not anything beyond that. And um, you know, again, I go back to the fact that none of these people ever picked up the phone. And by the way, there's evidence out there that hopefully will come to light that it wasn't just the Russians that were doing this. That, you know, that none of these people picked up the phone and well, who, who, who called else the FBI. There's a foreign person, you know, offering me this, trying to make, con I mean, like, what the hell? Ooh. You know, they didn't, they didn't have any inkling that something was amiss. 
you you dropped a little dime there. There was indications that it wasn't just the Russians. Who else? Other countries were looking at this while this was happening. They were watching what Russia was doing, and there's one of two options. One is they could just say, we want no part of this because we don't want it to blow up in our faces. And others were saying, huh, so you're saying that if we get in touch with people like Jared Kushner and you know perhaps and we make something worth his time that's a way to further our national interest and i think that uh you know you've seen countries that were eager to do that now again is that a crime is it a crime for a foreign country to target you for a recruitment attempt or to try to you know dangle something in front of you it is not where it becomes criminals if you participate and if you hold a security clearance, if you don't, you know, contact the FBI with foreign contact. But, you know, none of these people at the time had security clearances. None of them worked for the government. Just because a foreign entity contacted them doesn't necessarily mean that it, it rises to the level of criminality. Where Flynn got himself in trouble was that he denied specifically the conversation he had with Kislyak, the uh, former yeah, Russian right. ambassador in the U.S. And I think that's... That conversation, like you see the progression, this is clearly a Russian attempt to form a relationship, a, a sort of which would have led to what I believe is an attempt to recruit him. And there are other countries that I'm sure were doing the same thing. Um, I'm sure that they were looking at people like Kushner or people who are non-traditional business people and looking at ways that they can get to them and appeal to them. That, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get back. First, got to take this break, and like I said, we'll be right back. And we're back, and uh, where we left this was talking a little bit about... Um, uh, those who were compromised or, or who were approached by Russia. Let's look ahead now, 2020. There's an indication that Russia is doing the same thing. Are they going to be able to take advantage of the situation as well as they did in 2016? Or, or are, there, uh, are there other ways, are there other wrinkles that will keep that from happening? This is all about disinformation at this point, right? So, you know, fake news. people talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fake news. And, you know, the reality is that the Russians didn't really create this dissent amongst Americans. I mean, that, that dissent that, that was always there, um, they, just, they just played on it. And it's no different than pitting the, the Sunni and the Shia, you know, in Iraq and Iran against each other. I mean, it really was a lot what they did. So to answer that question, you have to say, are we, are we, are we two camps? And in many ways, Brian, we really are like two countries right now. And could someone come in there and stoke the fears and the anger and turn, you know, and pit one group against another? Absolutely. I think that is very much a, a risk. And again, you know, what is the crime Russia would commit if they started doing fake, you know, news, which they do or, or they started do. doing? Yeah, nothing. There, there's, there's nothing we can do other than count on Facebook and Twitter to stop it, which is, you know, has its own challenge. Right. Well. And, and But I was more wondering if the coronavirus would create an environment. I mean, you just saw that um, Putin's press secretary has been hospitalized. Many in his inner circle now have the coronavirus. How does that, does this pandemic play across global um, politics in the next year? Domestically, we have groups that are saying this is fake news. We have... 
white supremacists who are seeing this as a way to further, you know, sort of racial division. And, and, and look, one of the crazy things is this, one of the white, like big white nationalist groups, their leaders and it lives in Russia. Um, it, it's this crazy thing. So will the Russians use um, groups like that who are, you know, trying to sow division, trying to create chaos? I think so. I think that, you know, and the coronavirus is a perfect example because there are people who just do not believe the facts. And if you all offer them an alternative and you start saying that the government's, you know, coming after you, are they going to agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, and we've seen that in the, we saw in 2016, the Russians were successful in like mobilizing protests and mobilizing, you know, things like that. I, I would not be surprised at all to, to learn that they are trying to do the same thing now using the coronavirus. Like, hey, you know, anti-lockdown protests, you know, like who's really behind that? We've seen reports that they're not, they're not actually grassroots movements. Right. They're not grassroots. They're, you, you said a little bit about one of the uh, white supremacists lives in Russia. Explain that to me. I, his name escapes me at the moment, but he was this, uh, he's from New Jersey. Um, and he's one of these real leaders in, in the movement. And it came out, I think last year, that um, he married a Russian woman, I think as late as 2017 or 2018, had left and was living in Russia and basically directing his group from Russia. So, you know, you're telling me that the Russian authorities aren't aware of who he is and where he is? Absolutely not. Of course they are. And that, I mean, that, that should tell you everything you need to know, that they're looking, they look at someone like that and they'll say, this is a political dissident that we want to encourage. And we want to encourage them to, you know, like the Salman Rushdie. I mean, although this guy's a, a, a neo-Nazi. And they'll they'll take someone like that because they see it as an advantage to help sow discord. And look, all Russia needs to do, Brian, to be successful is just to keep the level of chaos this high in this country. And it doesn't take much to stoke the flames of hatred and fear. Yeah, I think we're talking about um, uh, Norman the Spear, Roman Wolf, uh, Ronaldo Nazaro. That's the guy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He lives in Russia with his Russian wife. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. No? no, even as his peers are arrested here in the United States, he's directing what, you know, if these guys were Muslims, um, we'd be calling them a transnational terrorist organization, which they are. But they're white supremacists, so we don't label them as such. And this guy happens to be living in Russia, directing this group from Russia. So what's the greatest challenge for intelligence gathering in the U.S. today? I mean, you've been, uh, I'll preface that by saying uh, the president has from the very first day he got in office, undermined his own uh, intelligence gathering. He has dissed uh, intelligence gathering. I, I think he's almost dismissed his daily intelligence briefing. So right. what's the, what, going forward, it, it, it's almost as if we, I don't, I don't want to sound like a cartoon, but it almost sounds like we have no intelligence, but we have no intelligence gathering. Uh, how difficult and what's the, what's what's that look like going forward? So we, we do have intelligence, what we call collecting, collection. And there's two, there's three parts to sort of the intelligence in sort of layman's terms. There's the collection of the intelligence, the analysis of it, and then the briefing of it. So uh, people should understand that intelligence uh, is, not an, is not meant to be the place where decisions are made. What the goal of an intelligence officer, an analyst, is to present analyzed raw intelligence so that a leader can make informed decisions. Right. So the biggest challenge the intelligence community has is that what do you do if your leader doesn't want to listen to the intelligence you're presenting them? 
you know, you can present all the intelligence and collect it and analyze it all you want. But if, if a leader does not want to make intelligence derived decisions, what do you do? And that's where we are. They, he just does not want to listen, you know, is there to an intelligence. To that? There isn't. I mean, he's the president of the United States. He doesn't have to listen to the intelligence community and their job is not to tell him what to do. Their job is to, and look, he surrounded himself with, you know, political, you know, partisans who are not looking at who are looking at this from the prism of 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 domestic politics and so his advisors aren't going to give him necessarily independent u.s strategic uh advice they're going to advise him on his re-election you know you have professionals professionals in the intelligence community who are saying you know uh this or that and he's not using that as a as a way to as a decision point as a basis to make to form you know, a decision because he's not a leader. I mean, this is not someone who's ever held a job or answered to a board director or investors or anything. Yeah, no, he, he's led a family business and that's... That's right. Now, so what... he's not used to having people come in and tell him stuff. <laughs> oh, well, I've tried to get him used to that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm just the asshole asking the questions. He just doesn't like to answer them. <laughs> you know, and, and look, and look, just to just to be fair, before we move on, you know, yeah, coronavirus before four months ago, none of us had really probably heard of a coronavirus, understood what it was, or you know, and, and I'm sure the no one would expect the president of the United States to be any different, but that's why you have experts, and this is the problem, Brian, is when you don't want to listen to the experts, when you don't want to base your decision on what they're saying, what can we do? And when well, you get rid of the programs that could have dealt with it, that's another. That's thing. right. That's and, right. And, and that's, that's all connected to that. When you don't see the value that these people bring, when you don't see the value in what they do, you're not going to listen to them. Yeah. And, you know, that's it's not just a problem with the intelligence community. It's a problem across the board with government. I mean, you know, you can't have you need to listen to these people. You need to, you <laughs> yeah, know, right. you, you would think. I mean, but if you they're not, they're not going to help you make an informed decision. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> but that's his presidency, right? I mean, it's extolling academia and, and liberals in their, you know, in their universities. And it's like, I don't know, maybe having smart people who understand science in a global pandemic and, advi and are advising you on such isn't a bad thing. You think? <laughs> I'm right. That's a good, let's think about that a little bit. We'll take a break and we'll think about that one and be right back. And uh, coming back, uh, I, I have to tell you, Navi, there's one thing I never let anyone get away from the show without doing it. You have to tell me uh, if you're stuck on a deserted island, or, or in this case, if you're quarantining yourself in your home, uh, what are you listening to? What's your favorite music? Uh, so right now I'm going through, uh, I don't know, if, uh, a, a Kid Cudi sort of uh, older sort of hip-hop rap uh, thing, and... And it's funny, like, I, Brian, I never thought about this, but, like, I miss listening to the radio while stuck in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought that they didn't admit that. Like, that doesn't happen anymore. Like, I, literally, That's true. I, you know, it's, it, there, was a, there was a joy in just listening to music when you were stuck and you had nowhere to go, whether it was commuting in the train and you're just packed in like sardines or you're 
sitting in your car and you're like, oh my God, it's 45 more minutes before I have to trap for me to go another mile or two to get home. And, you know, we don't have that anymore. And you, know, no. you just listen to some music and it takes you away. And so I've been sort of, I guess I would say I've been missing sort of like the traffic type music that one would <laughs> find himself mindlessly sort of humming or singing to in the car. So it's a pretty eclectic uh, conversation, you know, wide range of stuff, everything from like Britney Spears to <laughs> anything else that sort of pop that just, you know, you would just be sitting there. You'd be like, you never want to admit you like, you, you enjoy the tune. But yeah, right? <laughs> You get one of those tunes caught in your mind and you can't get it out. That's, that's exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I, for parents with young children, they'll understand the baby shark thing. Oh, my like God. That, you know. Yeah, well, <laughs> that was burned in my mind, and I don't even have kids that young anymore. But that's <laughs> but but my son does. He has a baby who's listening to the baby shark, and uh, that one will get to you. Uh, the Barney Absolutely. song is the one that used to get to me, but uh, that's, you know... <laughs> I wanted to punch people out when they started <laughs> singing the Barney song. Uh, all right, so here's the other one. All right, Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones? Uh, Led Zeppelin. Okay, so Led Zeppelin or the that Beatles? I would definitely take Zeppelin. I mean, I growing up uh, in the Zeppelin late song. 80s, early 90s, definitely. Uh, I love the Stones, um, but I remember listening to Zeppelin much more as a, as a teenager. I saw a meme the other day. The only people that are can uh, walk around the earth without a mask or uh, those who've already been infected. And of course, Keith Richards, he's the only one that's going to survive. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Cockroaches oh, man, and Keith know, Richards. <laughs> it's, it's, isn't it ironic that the only thing that'll keep the stones from touring is, is a global pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> well, right. That's, they're going to be 120 years old and still touring. Uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> With the original, all the original, the original people band members, right? <laughs> they'll start singing "Start Me Up," and they'll actually have to do it. Uh, <laughs> 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 Plug them in. Let's go. Uh, so, uh, all right. So, uh, finally, where do you? Let's. I'd like to end on. I always like to laugh a little bit. Land on a little bit of hope. What do you see? Where do you see us? When do you see us coming out of this? And do you see us coming out of it better or worse? You know, in a lot of ways, this, the coronavirus has pushed through things that normally Americans wouldn't be talking about. I mean, my goodness, just the pollution, the fact that we're not driving as much, right? So the right. air quality is improved. Um, you know, there's a real possibility, strong possibility, the longest, longer this goes on, the more companies will let people uh, permanently work from home, and that'll become a, a cultural shift. And so, you know, the the weeks and months that people, Americans spend every year commuting to and from work will go away. Um, and that'll be great. The other thing is we're talking about things like universal basic income. And we're talking about things like universal health care. And, you know, my hope is that as we emerge from this, these are ideas that really Americans now understand their benefit and they push for and they realize that these are things that you know we really do need, and they're not just social socialist uh, right. freebies. Like this is actually something that is beneficial. So, in a, in, a, in a strange way, Brian, you know, a lot of these ideas that were sort of, I think, stopped from being part of the common water mainstream. cooler now, maybe it's virtual water cooler discussion, are, are, are becoming more mainstream and a lot more accepted. Yeah, I think I, that's a positive. I always hold out hope for. I always, you know, you got to have hope, or uh, else what are you going to do? But 
Um, yeah. I, I take a look at um, what's happened in the last few months and, you know, since the beginning of the year. And um, when I went out, I went out to L.A. in March for my son's uh, wedding, which got canceled because of the coronavirus. Mm. And then rather right. than flying back uh, and staying in a Petri dish of a airport, I drove back with uh, my youngest son, who's been quarantined with us here. And I get out once a week to go to the White House uh, and then, you know, get poted, you know, prodded and poked and, you know, have magic wand waved over me. And then, I'm, you know, no fever and I can go in. And uh, other than that, have been locked down. But one of the things I found in my drive across country coming back was that um, people are, are far more hopeful than social media, mainstream media, and especially the president are. So that was reassuring to me. But I, I don't know. I mean, I worry. There are two things I, I, I'm concerned with, and, and we'll leave it with this. This is my bottom line concern with what you do for a living or what you have done for a living is have we lost faith in in intelligence gathering as a whole? If we do that, then my hope is muted because I I think that we need to rely on on we have to rely on intelligence gathering. It has to be reliable. And if we are questioning it to the point that we don't believe it just because we don't like it, then we've got a problem. And that's where I think that's the fulcrum that I'm, I'm looking at. Yeah. Look, before the coronavirus happened, uh, I think we all felt that we were on the precipice of fundamental change. We just don't know what it was going to be. Like this is, you know, Donald Trump really represents the, attempt of a generation to sort of hold on and stop change. And I think change is going to happen. And, and I'll, I'll leave you with a very specific thing. So Seattle, where I live, really, um, even though we were the, you know, on paper, the first place to have a Starbucks. Uh, a yep, exactly. <laughs> Starbucks too. Um, but Starbucks is a perfect example. So the approach to Seattle was the minute this became a thing, Amazon, Google, Starbucks, Expedia, all these big companies that have a huge workforce um, in Seattle took a look at this and within the course of 24 hours told their employees to stay home. And so Amazon, which employs 55,000 people that come to Seattle, told everyone overnight, stay home. It wasn't the government. It wasn't local, state or the federal government. But they looked at data. They looked at their bottom line and they said, this is what's going to be best for us and we can do it. So when you talk about data driven and it's not just intelligence, it's really the idea that data has value and that decisions should be made with some sort of scientific objective backing to it. Blasphemy. And look, I know, right? <laughs> But that is what saved this city. A lot of people don't want to admit it. And you, you can you can lambast, uh, you know, Amazon and all these big companies, and there's rightfully so. But in a lot of ways, they're what saved this city from spreading. You know, they told their 100,000 plus workforce in 24 hours, you're working from home. And that stopped the virus from spreading. You know, it would have spread considerably faster and, and much farther across the state if they hadn't done that. And, you know... I think that that gives me hope that that is an approach that if new leadership comes in, I think it is going to be embraced. Well, that's, uh, well, well, we'll leave it on that hopeful note. And Navid, I appreciate you being here. Do you, uh, I'd love to have you back sometime and talk more if yes. you're up for it. That sounds good. All righty. The name of the program is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.